From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 234. Today's show is brought to you by Lunar Display, Squarespace, and Green Chef. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. How are you? I'm fine and dandy, my friend. How are you? Uh, doing great. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what the weather's like here. You're just going to have to guess. Well, it's probably similar. It's pretty warm here today, actually, but nobody cares about that because it's time for a hashtag snow talk question. And today's comes from Tyler. And Tyler asks the simple three-word question, Jason, of bagged or loose leaf? Hmm. It's referring to groceries, obviously. Yeah. Do, do you loose leaf your groceries? Because you have a Nissan Leaf. Is that when you just throw the groceries <laughs> inside? You just let them roll around? That has happened where I've forgotten to bring the, the shopping bags to the store and they're they're like do I, I can charge you extra and put these in bags and mm-hmm. i say you know what don't just put them in the cart i'm, I'm rolling loose leaf today <laughs> i'll do the loose leaf <laughs> grocery and then well i did that one time and i ha- i didn't bring the bags in the car in the uh, store but i had them in the car and i'm like you know what i'll bag the groceries in the parking lot mm-hmm. and then uh do it that way so that was that it's like a between loose leaf and bagged. Anyway, the, this question is actually... Well, there was that, that one time when you had loose leaf cans rolling around in the back of the car while we were recording an episode of Upgrade. Yeah, sure. Hashtag car cost. That's a deep cut for that, that's, that's right. long-time Upgrade listeners. And if that was in the new, le, loose leaf, it would be a loose leaf leaf. Mm-hmm. And when Tweedlebeetles battle, it's a Tweedlebeetle battle. Anyway, this mm-hmm. is a question about tea, and the answer is uh, the tea robot that I have, that I love, that's the uh, Breville tea-making thing that uh, that automatically makes my tea in the morning and is great, uh, is a loose leaf thing. So you put the tea, you put a couple of scoops of the tea in the in the little basket and then it automatically boils the water and puts the tea down in for three minutes or whatever time you set. And then it pulls the water back or the, the basket back out. Um, and then if I'm traveling and stuff, then it's just it's bagged because uh, it's convenient. It's convenient. And, and uh, it's fine. So that's my answer. But, but I buy tea, loose leaf tea in bulk and uh, use it in the tea robot. The tea robot I have found, uh, by searching for your name and T-Robot, and I'll put it uh-huh. in the show notes. <laughs> okay. Yep. It's very, very easy to find. There. It is one of my favorite ridiculous gadgets because I, lo- I love it because it means... Because making tea is fussy because if you leave the tea in the water too long, um, it gets bitter and it's bad. And so what this thing will do is heat up the water to whatever temperature you want, then put the tea in the water for as long as you want, and then remove the tea from the water. So you can basically wake up in the morning like I do and put water and and tea, press a button and walk away, and come back whenever, 20 minutes later, an hour later, and there's hot tea for you. It's pretty nice, but you do have to buy a gadget for it. Uh, Jason, I have just a very quick uh, piece of follow-up and some uh, very quick upstream news as well today. We're just going to fire through this so you were thinking more um as is as is the way the 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 upgrade cycle right which is either one of it typically goes this way jason writes something and i think hmm, that might be interesting to talk about on the show so we talk about it on the show and then jason thinks about something on the show and then writes mm-hmm, another mm-hmm, article mm-hmm. that comes out of life upgrade. it's, it's the circle, like it's, uh, composting for yeah. ideas mm-hmm. yeah so you wrote an article on macworld kind of fleshing out a little bit more uh, about the thinking behind uh, the your thoughts on Apple moving more into the smart home product business uh, and a little bit about your great idea of the Apple TV soundbar as well. So people can go and can go and read that. But is there anything more that you wanted to expound upon from last week? 
Uh, no, I mean that was it, it was a good conversation. It was a story that had been sitting in my to do list for a long time, and uh, we then we talked about it on the show, and that was enough of an impetus for me to say, oh, why don't I just turn this into an article? Um, in writing the article, though, it went from originally as conceived by me being kind of a pitch for the Apple TV soundbar, uh, which for those who didn't listen last week is a combination of a HomePod and an Apple TV, uh, because I think there might be actually a product there. And I think that might be uh, interesting for Apple. But it was a larger point of as Apple's competitors uh, buy its, uh, buy the other products in the market, you know, that was my larger point was I feel like we, all the same arguments apply that Apple shouldn't get into the smart home business necessarily because they're focused on bigger they have bigger fish to fry basically they, they're focused on these enormous hit products um that is all still reasonable uh the problem is that if their competitors buy up every other smart home gadget and infrastructure uh tool that's out there so that um their customers apple's customers can't get on the internet without passing through a gateway controlled by their competitors that maybe apple needs to start thinking about strategically buying companies that are doing home tech just to keep them even if they just put them in a subsidiary Mm -hmm. just to keep them out of the clutches of google and amazon especially and maybe facebook uh and and I, i i've kind of come around to that feeling like maybe you need to be present here because if you're apple because your competitors are very much present there. And if they snap up every innovative company that's going in here, and like I know you don't want to make a Wi-Fi router, Apple, but what if all the Wi-Fi routers are owned by the competition? They're going to work less well with your stuff, and you know the priority is going to be on your competition's um, uh, products and also their business model. So that's the, that's the long and short of it. I understand the argument of like bigger fish to fry, but... They can fry as many fish as they want. Right? They can. Like, they could. They could fry a lot of fish. I think Apple is not built that way no. historically. Like they don't hire a lot of people. They are. We see it right. Like they could have an enormous operation, but I think they believe that part of the magic of what they do is that they keep it on the small side. But like I said, you know, maybe the answer they they hired a new person to be in charge of their smart home efforts. Right? They hired a new person. So the question was. What's his charter? Is his charter to like make a different HomePod or whatever? Or is it to do something uh, to have a bigger impact in this area? And again, does Apple have to make it all? No, but Apple has a lot of money. So another model would be for Apple to invest in uh, a bunch of these companies or maybe even buy these companies outright and then just say, no, they're going to run out there. Um, it's fine. This is like, a model Apple already employs, lest we not forget Beats, right? Beats is a separate company that seems to have its own marketing and it's all of its own product development and branding, they share sure. with Apple. But there is nothing to stop Apple from having its kind of like alphabet moment with, with Nest or, what, you know, like that they could yeah. have a separate company that makes technology for the home that is still owned by them. And as Zach in the chat room is pointing out, FileMaker, never forget, never forget FileMaker. But like Beats is the better example here, right? If like that is a hardware company with a different brand that Apple wholly owns, but you could very easily forget that they do. And maybe they could do that for Smart Home. Yeah, I mean, I think all options should be on the table. But if the argument is that Apple should never invest strategically in keeping products that are innovative away from their competition, 
um, in the home, especially, and in the home infrastructure and smart home markets, because Apple culturally can't focus on that many things at once, then I think the answer is Apple's got a lot of resources. Apple doesn't need to focus its people on it. Apple could set a budget and set up a company with somebody in charge of it to just uh, either make investments or buy companies and then allow them to run on their own. There are lots of other models here, uh, but I do just, I had that moment where I thought, is it really good that Amazon bought Eero and that that uh, that Google has bought, you know, Google bought Nest back in the day and Dropcam and a whole bunch of other things? Like, is it is it good for Apple if Apple says, you know, we're just going to sit out and do HomeKit and HomeKit's going to be great and people are going to support it. And meanwhile, every company that makes something that is part of that infrastructure gets bought by their competition. I'm I, I'm not sure... That's a good thing for Apple, even if Apple is right in saying, guys, we don't, you know, we don't want to make a smart switch, right? Like, I get why they don't, although I think they could make one and have big margins on it and sell it at the Apple store and make a lot of money. But uh, that's another thing I mentioned in that article. But anyway, I just I'm fascinated about where Apple stands currently in the home uh, smart home market and what that might mean in the long run now that they've made this new hire. What's his role? Is his role to really expand what Apple does or is it his role to do what Apple's been doing up to now, which is kind of just, uh, I don't know, having a lot of remove from it, doing some infrastructure stuff in terms of like HomeKit, but otherwise sort of saying we're not going to play here at all. So we have a quick piece of upstream news. Uh, it was the Oscars last night and Netflix have picked up a selection of Oscars. Um, yeah. They did not get Best Picture for Roma, which they were clearly going for, but they got mm-hmm. maybe second best. They got best uh, Alfonso Cuaron, the Best Director Oscar yep. uh, for, for the movie Roma. They also won Best Foreign Language Film and Best Cinematography. Three ain't bad for one yeah, movie. It's not bad. Uh, they had, I think, one previous feature Oscar before. So this is this is they got three this year. They were hoping for Best Picture. Uh, I am not an Oscar handicapper, but I will say I'm kind of not surprised. Like the fact that Roma didn't win makes me feel like there's a section of the Academy um, voting group that is just down on a Netflix movie winning. They did not want them to win. Yeah. That, yeah. And it's a ranked yeah. choice. Yeah. Uh, they they rank them all from top to bottom. And so, like, it wouldn't surprise me if there are a bunch of people who are like, Mm-mm, I'm not even going to put a Netflix movie. There was somebody in the t- in the industry um, in the last week, and I forget who it was. Maybe it was a theater owner. But somebody actually referred to Roma as a TV movie, which Oof. I thought was like, come on, man, come on. But that, that was like, there are people who have that, that, that are that angry about Netflix playing in the Oscars at all uh, because they feel like it's a, a, an assault on the livelihood of the of the mm-hmm. movie industry. And so um, it doesn't surprise me that it, that it didn't win, uh, my gut feeling being that that's why it didn't win. By the way, I saw Roma this weekend. It's spectacularly good. I will okay. say that. It is a very, very, very good movie. So um, I'm sort of sad that it didn't win Best Picture. Um, but uh, I'm glad that it won what it did. But yes, so Netflix, the, the Netflix wanting to win awards uh, story continues. It's it's progressed, but not maybe as far as they hoped. And our favorite, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse won uh, best, best Animation, which was yeah, wonderful. That was, I was really happy Isn't that funny? That. I mean, that's such a great story where yeah. everybody assumed that the winner would be one of these other uh, powerhouse animated movies. 
um, especially like Incredibles 2. But there was like so many movies that there's a prestige animated movie and there's like the winners in the category almost every year. And then Into the Spider-Verse came out and everybody said, oh, no, this is one of the best movies of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, this should totally win. And it did, which was which was really great to see. So I was happy about that, too. And I, I, um, I'll just I'll just make a shout out a uh, an elementary school friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine. Uh, was up for best documentary short subject and he lost but um, his name was read on stage and what they do with the people who are in the awards that are um, they don't get a good seat they're seated far away is they bring all the nominees up they have these two little rows off to the left and you might have seen them during the show Um, sometimes they didn't even have uh, I saw somebody tweeting about like why are there empty seats at the front of the stage and the answer is well they're moving the old uh nominee group out and the new nominee group in because mm-hmm. that's one way they tried to speed up the show is that you can't have people coming from 90 rows back um anyway uh my friend sky was in the front uh on the aisle front row when his category was announced and he didn't win it but i i was like oh that's sky that's great so the kid oh, i cool. played on the playground at columbia elementary school and in, in uh, columbia california uh was nominated and uh and was there, and I got to see him, and they said his name, and that was pretty awesome. So his movie was Light, Lifeboat, but it didn't win. Never mind. But that's still great. A nomination. That's pretty amazing. Like that, that'll take you some places. All right, today's episode is brought to you in part by our friends over at Green Chef. Green Chef is a meal delivery service that includes everything that you're going to need to make delicious gourmet meals at home that you will be able to cook and feel good about. Green Chef sends a wide variety of organic ingredients and imaginative new recipes to your home every week. Their meal plans include options for paleo, vegan, vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, omnivore, and carnivore diets. This is what really sets Green Chef apart. They are also the first USDA-certified organic meal delivery service. Every ingredient that Green Chef will send you is thoughtfully sourced, and its journey is tracked from planting to plating. The recipes include pre-made sauces, dressings, and spices as well, so you can get more flavor in your meals with less time for you to work on. Jason Snell, I understand that our friends at Green Chef sent you a box of lovely ingredients. Yes, we have been feasting upon the Green Chef uh, for the last <laughs> couple of weeks. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, the yes, it's very good, and uh, I was I was really impressed with the packaging. One of the things that we noticed about the packaging is that it's um, it, it is kind of uh, sanely packaged. There's not a lot of plastic wrapping and stuff. It's it's uh, good ingredients proportioned well, and then also um, I, I like that they used a lot of uh, they have like little paper shells, and there's a minimum of plastic in the box, and I thought that was all pretty good too. So yeah, and good, and we've had some several good meals, even complaining children. Uh, did not complain as much. I'm not going to say didn't complain at all because that never happens, but did not complain as much. So that was a win. That's a win. That's a big win. With Green Chef, it's easy to maintain, especially to diet, and enjoy exciting new options as well. And anybody can be a cook with Green Chef's help. For $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash upgrade. That's G-R-E E-N-C-H-E-F dot U-S slash upgrade. That's greenchef.us slash upgrade for $50 off your first box of Green Chef. Our thanks to Green Chef for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, Jason Snell. It is Mobile World Congress right now, and it we is. just had Samsung Unpacked, which is Samsung's kind of, that's the branding for their events that they do. 
And some of the big trends coming out of the Samsung event, the S10, by the way, I think it looks really cool, but we're not going to get into that today. Um, we're going to talk about foldables. And I would say at this point, that is the name of the category now, foldables. I don't think that was a thing that really existed before the last few days. There was like a lot of like, oh, folding phones, foldable phones. They're called foldables now, like phablets for phablets. We have foldables. Sure. Um, and we spoke about this a number of weeks ago as we were building up to these events. It's kind of like, would Apple do this and what that might look like? That was on episode 229. Um, so you can go and check that out there if you want to get more details. But I wanted to talk about the two big phones that have been announced in the last week, which is the Samsung Galaxy Fold and the Huawei Mate 10. So Jason, if you will permit me, I would like to talk about some of the specs and some of the features of these two phones, and then we can kind of compare them a little bit with our thoughts sure. on how they look and how they seem to be acting. So Samsung Galaxy Fold has two displays. There is a 4.6-inch display on the outside, and then you open it up to see a 7.3-inch display on the inside. It has half a terabyte of storage and 12 gigabytes of RAM. 12 gigabytes of RAM in a thing you're holding your hands is so much. Uh, it has two batteries, of course, one in each side. Um, and their hinge system is this, like, fancy thing full of gears. They showed this animation, and it looked bonkers. Okay, the Galaxy Phone has five cameras. It has three cameras on the outside and two cameras on the inside. And Samsung has also been doing some work with some large developers, and they've got some SDK information to enable three-app multitasking in the Galaxy Fold. It's going to be shipping in April, April 26th, and it will cost $1,980. <laughs> we'll get to the prices later because that's like a whole separate discussion. And nobody was allowed to touch it or even see it off of the stage, I believe. There the is, event, which suggests that this yeah. is a product that doesn't doesn't really quite exist yet no, like literally no, at the done. Samsung it's event nobody saw it the only time people saw it with their own eyes was basically on they stage. have so, it yeah. in a case reminiscent of the first iPhone on the show mm. floor at Mobile World Congress um, uh, there you go there you so go it, it's like the the original iPhone or the Mac Pro right which is probably for sa the same reason as those devices were encased in glass because it's not done they've got a yeah, couple of months left to finish don't the software don't touch it. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we've got the Huawei Mate 10. So this phone is a little thinner than the Galaxy Fold. It has a bigger screen and it folds more flat when closed. So the Galaxy Fold, it kind of has like a small gap towards the hinge when you close it up. But it's not, it's not as bad as our friend, the Royale Flex Pie of Cheese. Um, the biggest difference between the Mate 10 and the Fold, and this is where I think the, the ideological war will be waged over the next year or two, the Huawei Mate 10 screen folds outwards, not inwards. So it has one screen and it folds outwards. So the, the Galaxy Fold, it's kind of like a book where you open it up and the screen's inside. Uh, but the Huawei, it folds in the opposite direction. So it's an 8-inch OLED display. Uh, when you fold it up, you get a 6.6-inch main display, um, which is the one you're using, and then a 6.4-inch rear display on the back. Um, and there is a grip section kind of reminiscent of the Kindle Oasis, uh, which is where the cameras are. So there's like a, a chunkier section that you can hold on to. And that's also where the, the folded side clips into. It has like a latch. Um, it also features half a terabyte of storage. It only, ha only has eight gigabytes of RAM. And the Huawei Mate 10 will start at $2,600 and shipping, quote, in the middle of this year. So... These are two very different phones, kind of in design. They're doing the same thing very, very differently. 
Um, do you have a favorite of these design-wise? Oh, you're going to set me up here because I know we disagree on this. So uh, you're going to set me up to go first. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. I could do it. Yeah, I think I think no. <laughs> how much should I overplay this? No reasonable person will disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> um that the uh i think the huawei one looks way better right but that you are in the consensus from people that i've been seeing online i think yeah. most people prefer the look of the huawei phone yeah yeah and i've got lots of reasons why i mean okay. i think the galaxy fold like uh when it's in its folded configuration i think it looks way stranger mm-hmm. than the the huawei phone super does Super weird that it's like super skinny and the display is like in the middle and you can't even call it a bezel because it's so huge the, like the, yeah. the bezel that goes around the screen it does look really weird it's very thick and the way they've engineered engineered it it is um it's thick and the folding part like it doesn't quite touch mm-hmm. um you know because it can't fold completely flat and so it's got this kind of space that's like the the hole in the donut yeah that, that is very strange Huawei has a space but it's way more uniform and way smaller like the gap in between what Huawei has done has they've made that grip section which reminded me of like the grip on my uh kindle oasis is actually kind of like this too but what they've done is the grip is not just a grip and a place where your sensor bar is, but it's also there so that when you fold the phone back around itself, um, it the, the screen comes level, basically, to the grip. And so you create this, um, like, sort of sandwich instead of the donut... <laughs> Yeah, that's it. I prefer the sandwich to the donut hole. Is what uh-huh. I'm saying, Mike. And this is we're going to have to find better words to describe yeah, these products as the foldable uh, ideological wars continue. <laughs> so I okay, I prefer the the design of the fold, and I know I'm in the minority. And I have a few things for this. I think that the Mate 10 looks less premium. Um, if you've seen any pictures of this, the hinge is super weird looking. I think compared to the uh, Fold's hinge. I think yeah. that the Galaxy Fold is a more premium-looking product mm-hmm. in, in the general. Hinge, we need to come back to that because I feel like every single early folding phone is just going to be a game of hide the hinge, right? Yes. Like, yes. how do we deal with the fact that we've got to have this weird superstructure to make our uh, display not crumple? Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think yeah. that Samsung has done a better job of, like, building it as part of the design and making it attractive. Like they're even allowing customization of the color of the hinge on the phone where Huawei, I think it's more a little bit rough and ready, right? Like it's mm. kind of looks like a inner tube or something. Like it's, it's like a super strange looking design to me, but the overall product probably does look better than the Huawei. But I'm thinking about like, if I'm going to own one of these, I'm thinking about like the long-term usability. And uh, I was watching a YouTube video from SuperSaf and he pointed out like how durable are these displays going to be? Because they're made of plastic because glass can't fold yet. I don't know if it ever will be able to hmm. or there'll be something in the middle. But like if the screen's on the outside always, is it likely to get scratched? I don't know. Right, well, that that's one of the, the things that... The market may and, and long-term use by people will reveal, but re- you're right. Like one of the fundamental differences, we can talk about the look and feel here. One of the fundamental design choices that Samsung made that Huawei did not make is adding a second screen and folding the big screen in on itself to theoretically protect it from the environment. Whereas Huawei is completely in on the idea that your entire phone is going to be exposed to the world. Mm-hmm 
as a screen, like the front of the screen. Like we make a big deal about like, oh, Apple did glass on the front and back of their phones. Now you can scratch or break. But like the Huawei, it's literally your screen all the way around. Yep. And that means that you've got twice the surface area exposed to the world in terms of scratches. You can't literally can't lay it down on a table on its back because it has no back really Nope. It's all screen. And, yeah. you know, Samsung, I, I got to say, Samsung has a little bit of home field advantage here, right? Because they've been building these screens and they uh, have experience with them probably that nobody mm-hmm. else has. This is why I look and, at it. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, and look they're like, at no, Samsung. no, we're not going to we're not going to open it to the world. <laughs> nope. <Right>. They know. <laughs> right? Samsung yeah. knows. <laughs> that, so like, my other thing on this as well, of like kind of having a preference for the for the Samsung line is, I believe if any company is going to make this work, Samsung will be the company to make it work because they have a history of making really weird phones and turning them into products that make sense down the line. Like the Note line, right? When the first Note came out, it seemed ridiculous. But they eventually not only have made that a great product but have pushed a lot of smartphone design towards what the original Note did in the first place, right? Like, if you just look at screen size as one of the bigger things, right? That was the first big phone, and now all phones are that big. I would probably, I mean, I haven't looked this up, but I bet most regular phones now are bigger than the original Note was, the screen size. Yeah, Um, probably. But so my thinking is, like, the Fold has some real awkwardness about it, which I think is that that front screen. But when they eventually get to like Fold 2 or Fold 3, where they can tighten the gap up and make that front screen a more regular looking phone and then have the open screen in the in the middle, I think that it will become a much more compelling product. Um, I mean, let alone the fact that Huawei have significant issues trying to sell their products worldwide worldwide right now. Like you will not be able to buy the Huawei Mate 10 in America. Like you just won't be able to do that. So that's going to hold them back a little bit irrespective of it. Um one of the bigger one of the big issues um and one of the things that I'm interested to see how it will eventually play out is creases. Creases in the screens. You can see them. Like if you look at videos and GIFs and images, you can see like the 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 Galaxy Fold has kind of a real thin line that goes down the middle, and the Huawei has like a book spine, basically, it looks like, that goes down the middle. This is just going to be another one of those things that it's going to look real bad in these first ones, but they're mm-hmm. gonna, they will eventually get there. The same with software. You, you know, you mentioned like nobody's really allowed to touch these devices yet. Um, Huawei are letting people touch it today, but they're not really allowed to use it. Um, the software is going to be an absolute dumpster fire for a while. Even when it comes out, it's going to be janky as hell because this is like fundamentally a different experience to any phone that's come before, right? And like, again, I also have faith in Samsung's ability just because of their size and scale as a company to be able to get more companies on board. And like they they mentioned like, WhatsApp and Office and and like Google mm-hmm. working with them on making the kind of they call it app continuity where you have you're looking at it on the front screen and you open it up and then it's in the bigger view and I think it looks really cool. I will say Jason you can probably tell I'm really excited about this trend. I don't think that either of these phones are like what this is going to be. Oh, no, no. You got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, and I feel like, as well, these two devices 
are a lot better than I expected the first foldables to be. Like, I was expecting them to look way more like the Royal FlexPi than these devices. Right, well, I was going to say, I'm glad you mentioned look, because these devices will ship and it's going to be like a disaster, right? Like yeah, they're yeah. going to have all sorts of things wrong with them. Yep. And that's part of the process. I don't think anybody is, uh, people who act shocked are silly people that you shouldn't pay attention to when they, when it turns out that there are all sorts of issues with these first generation foldables. Cause, uh, that's going to happen. But, uh, but uh, as you pointed out, like they, they look, they look better than, then again, in two years, we'll look at these and we'll be like, wow, those were terrible. Yeah. Right? Like, look at like, those like, ridiculous hinges. Can you even believe they had creases? Yeah. Now we have this magic foldable gloss that nobody knew that existed. There's a really nice, we put it in the show notes. There's a really nice um, link to a thread on Twitter by Steven Sanofsky, who of course worked at Microsoft and has lots of very smart things to say about technology yep. on Twitter. Um, and he, he links in it to a different thread he did like, I don't know, a couple months ago about foldable phones. But his point, and it's a point that I made in a, in a Macworld, or no, in a Tom's Guide column a while back too, um, you know, talking about Apple in, in the context of this too, it's like uh, what, what Sanofsky says is very much what we've been saying. Um, it's early days. These first products are going to be ridiculous. Um, there's a software issue. I mean, he knows this from having been at Microsoft uh, when they were trying to put a touch interface in. Like, part of the issue here, too, is like, what's Google going to do with Android? And where is it going to bend over backward to help uh, its vendors with stuff like this? Because it does do that sometimes. Remember, it came out with, like, ways of doing notches and, and, and stuff. Oh, I 100% believe that one of the next, that Android Q, one of its things will be supporting uh, flexible displays like right. like like they did in in Pi with notches like they built exactly. a bunch of notch support exactly so so but it's still an open question of like where do they throw do they throw their weight behind what Samsung is doing where there's like a single screen that becomes two screens or do they put effort into something because if they think that what Huawei is doing has merit um they could for example um build it so that you can more easily put um, you know, different status information on the front and back of the screen when folded yep. or something yep. like that, right? Like there there are things they could do or they could be like, no, we're not going to support that. Like when it's folded, we're just going to put status on the front and there's nothing on the back and forget it, right? Like they could, it's sort of like going to be interesting to see what their, where they place their bets in terms of their resources that they're putting in. And, and because again, if we don't really know how these foldable phones are going to work ultimately, if you're Google, you, you know, you're probably not going to be able to support every possible configuration. So you may make some bets and that will be interesting to see. And then Sanofsky's other point that I thought was really good is something about Apple, which is, you know, everybody's going to say Apple's behind, but Apple, and I, I would argue maybe Google with their hardware as well, had the great advantage of sitting and watching these other companies spend all this money. And also let's, let's be clear is Apple building foldable iPhones inside Apple as prototypes to try and figure out what the right yes. way to do it is. They, undoubtedly, they have yeah. been doing that for years now. Years mm-hmm. they've been they've been doing. As that. soon as they could get like these screens from Samsung for like crazy amounts of money, just so they could prototype with them, sure. they bought them. Right? Like yeah. every time Samsung comes up with anything, you know Apple's buying it. Right? Like okay, let's just get this screen and see what we can do with it because you'd be silly not to. And Apple also has an advantage that Sanofsky points out, which is Apple actually is further along in terms of dealing with these larger screens because Apple has the advantage of having introduced the iPad 
um, nine years ago and having it be successful and having it have lots of apps that run on it. Whereas um, Android has not had as great a success with that. And so there's a little more work to do there. So Apple's got some advantages as well um, because of the iPad to go into a larger foldable device. So I think that... um, Apple's not behind, even though pundits will probably say that, that they are watching closely and making and will make their move. And as Sanofsky points out, like Apple is the ship it when it's ready at volume and uh, is the sort of seal of approval on the market in a sense. It's like, oh, okay, mom and dad are here now, right? Like Mm -hmm. now we're now it's gotten serious because we've exited the throwing things against the wall to see what sticks mode. Now, Apple can go too early and they can go too late but they're generally uh, they've generally historically been pretty good about hitting it pretty close to on the nose um, in fact I think the the large phone thing was a, a, a counterexample where their um, philosophy uh, of what made a good iPhone got in the way of the reality of the market but we we've seen through patent filings and things that Apple has been on this idea for a long time. Um, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if they were prototyping foldable iPhone designs before there were foldable screens ready for them, <laughs> like just yeah. as a test of what would we do with this just to get out in front of it. And I think uh, I think this category, like, look, this category could be a loser, you know, in the end. And this is why I want to say this as fascinating as this is from just a pure tech enthusiasm perspective of like, oh, my God, this is like a science fictional product that's come to be reality. I think there is truth in the fact that this is all being driven by the idea that with OLED technology, you have the ability to make flexible screens. And once you're at that point, everybody says, oh, flexible screens. That means we can make foldable smartphones. So let's make those. It's not motivated by a desire necessarily at least not primarily motivated by a desire in the market for a foldable phone it's more like the technology lets us do this and this is this is where apple secret sauce comes in honestly and i know at this point apple's not a secret everybody knows about apple and there are lots of companies trying to do ways and things in the way that apple does and and that includes huawei and samsung they're trying to figure this out um they do it in public apple does it in private but I, I think the larger point here is the the magic moment in technology, whether you're Apple or someone else, is that moment when you can take what technology is possible and use it to create a product that serves a need or solves a problem. And right now, I think we can see that there is a problem, which is that people like bigger screens, but... At some point, I think the perception is they won't fit in your pocket. Like people like bigger screen phones. They might like tablets. Some people love tablets, but a tablet won't fit in your pocket. And maybe that's the thing, the problem this solves. I I don't want to leave. I don't want to close off the possibility that that is not a problem and that nobody wants this because I think it's at least a possibility. So I'm not ready to go 100% and say this is our this is our foldable future. Um, it may be further off than we think because in the end, this may be so costly, have so many issues and solve a problem that is not perceived as a problem by most of the market that it's just not going to be a big deal, mm-hmm. but it might. 
And I think if you're somebody at Apple who's working on this stuff and filing patents for the last three or four years, that's the debate, right? Which is like, how can we do this in a way that makes sense and that people are delighted by because it makes their experience better? Mm -hmm. Because right now, a lot of this stuff is very much like, hey, I've got a screen that can fold. Let's make a phone that can fold around it. And that that doesn't say anything about the people who want to buy it. It just says, we have cool tech, let's stick it in a product. And that's yep. the, for the, the, that's the difference between the art and the science here. And that's why I think you and I are so fascinated by this is like, how do you, how we don't know how wide the chasm is. <laughs> we don't know whether somebody's going to be able to jump across it, uh, whether it's going to happen. I'm going to take this metaphor a little bit further, whether it's going to happen now or, or whether or it's going to take years and we're going to have to bring in some heavy equipment to build a, a bridge across this chasm, or if it's simply unbridgeable because nobody wants to go over there. And we don't know. And Samsung and Huawei don't know. And Apple doesn't know. And Google doesn't know. But um, this tech is here now. So everybody's going to give it a shot in their own way and we'll see and that to me that is one of the most entertaining things about following technology because this could be transformative or it could be nothing (laughs) we don't know we don't know i wanted to just touch on the price angle real quick before we move on because these these are expensive right (laughs) they're starting at 1980 1980 1980 dollars but like or 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 the uh, or what is it 2600 for the other one so yeah yeah yeah, that's (laughs) i really am intrigued as to why the prices are so different like are samsung willing to take more of a hit on it i don't know um but it make i mean is anyone surprised like it's two smartphones stuck together, essentially, right, is, is what's going on here. That, especially when you look at, like, the Samsung. It, they're doubling up a lot of components. And I just wanted to, like, you know, they're cutting edge, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, a lot of like, the design and the, the R&D is going into this cost, um, and it m- will come down over time. But I just wanted to mention, like, it's so you've got 512 gigabytes of storage, right? The 10s Max at 512 gigabytes of storage is $1,449. So it's $500 cheaper than the folding phone. That doesn't seem like a bit as big a difference as I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, I just wanted to mention that, like, because I, I, so I've been talking about this online and people are like, oh, Apple will make it cheaper. I don't think they will. Yeah, I think I think you're right. In fact, this is if we know anything, look at the iPhone 10. The iPhone 10 brought in new tech that allowed Apple to charge $300 more than they previously charged for their phones. Mm-hmm. Right? That's essentially what they did. So it's not at all far-fetched to look at something like folding phone technology and say, "Well, when Apple does make a folding iPhone, that is one that they're going to charge $500 more for." Yep. Because otherwise don't get the folding phone. Like you have to pay more. There's more tech in here, costs more. Um, I'll also point out early generation stuff that does what no stuff did before, like is expensive. The original Mac cost $2,500, which in today's money is $6,200 for that little original Mac. It was a, it was really expensive and it took a long time for the Mac to come down in price. And that's just, that's that original tech like you're paying the people who buy a $2000 folding Samsung phone are doing it because they want to be on the super cutting edge and maybe don't care about the fact that it's not practical and are willing to pay for it and you know good luck to those people <laughs> but right now like as you say of course it's going to be massively expensive because as well Samsung and Huawei do not expect to sell a lot of these they they don't right like 
this is probably something that's really difficult to make and they're probably not going to make that many of them and they probably don't expect to sell that many of them. But that's not the point of the first one. The first one is like, let's get it out there. Let's see what people think about it. Let's actually do something for all of the research and development that we put into it and then move ahead. All right, today's show is brought to you by Lunar Display. Now, I love my Lunar Display. It's fun. Like, Lunar Display is almost like a foldable display for your Mac, I guess. You could just... Uh-huh. Do you know what LG did this, Jason? They bring in out a case which has a second display. That's their, the way they're dealing with the foldable display thing. You can just buy a case for your LG display, LG phone, and it's just a second display. And huh. <laughs> like that's their, that's their answer to this right Solved. now. Solved. It's all taken care of. But Lunar Display is the hardware solution that turns your iPad into a wireless display for your Mac, meaning you'll have a second display that is super portable with basically zero lag and stunning image quality. I use my Lunar Display every single day now because I am somebody who loves to work on the iPad, but I totally understand that sometimes the apps that I use just won't let me do things the way that I want to do them. So now I can just open my Lunar Display, which is attached to a Mac Mini, which sits in my office, and I can take care of what I need to take care of and get it done. Like sometimes I want to be able to access like a full version of a web browser, like say like YouTube or something. The YouTube creator app and you trying to use YouTube on the iPad is just a disaster. They just won't let it happen. So I just open up Lunar Display and I can go into the YouTube Creator Studio and get what I need done. What I love about Lunar Display for me personally is that I basically have macOS as an app on my iPad, but it can be used for way more than that. You can use it for extra screen real estate while you're sitting at your desk and getting stuff done. Maybe when you're traveling and you're using a laptop and you need a second display with you, you can even just plug it in over USB rather than using the Wi-Fi connection at home. And you can have your Lunar Display working and ready to go right there. It's so simple to set up, and you're going to love that extra screen real estate. Uh, Lunar Display supports external keyboards. It supports the iPad Smart Keyboard and Apple Pencil as well, and touch interactions. It basically turns your Mac into a touchscreen device. And the all-new Liquid Video Engine with Lunar Display brings significantly reduced latency and faster screen refresh rate, a faster screen refresh rate than ever before. I absolutely love it. Listeners of this show can get a 10% exclusive discount on a Lunar Display. Just go to l-u-n-a-d-i-s-p-l-a-y.com and use the promo code upgrade at checkout that is lunadisplay.com promo code upgrade at checkout to get your 10 percent off go there right now upgrade your setup you're gonna love it a thanks to lunar display for their support of this show and all of relay fm all right so uh mark german had a report about marzipan um do you know what i, f- I found interesting about this report i know it's just german's name um yes. in this report which is different uh, i'm starting to think jason that there's something about where the information is coming from and who's writing the reports and then kind of how the reports feel at Bloomberg. Like I haven't put my finger on it yet, but like this one's pretty concise. But anyway, uh, basically the thing to take away from this is a timeline of Marzipan. And for the refresher, Marzipan is iOS apps running on the Mac. This was Project Sneak Peek shown off at WWDC last year, uh, which brought with it the news app and the home app onto the Mac. Um, for a very iOS-y apps. So this is the timeline. At WWDC 2019, developers will get the tools that they need to help them port iPad apps to the Mac. In WWDC 2020, this support will extend for iPhone apps. And then WWDC 2021, the ability to merge iPhone, iPad, and Mac apps into a new universal app for customers to buy. 
What do you think of that timeline, Jason? Does that max does that like pass the sense check for you? Yeah, I I think so, right? Like obviously Apple has said that in 2019 developers are going to get tools to do this. Um I'm a little bit baffled by the iPhone in 2020. Um, you know, we only have like two sentences from Mark Gurman on this, so everybody is trying to extrapolate here. Um, the best I can come up with, because like, again, I think of iPhone apps and I think, well, you know, I could get a little iPhone app in a window on my Mac and that would be fine. I think what Apple's thinking here is they're thinking about laptops because that's two thirds of the Mac are laptops. And they're thinking about having something that can fill the screen. Not that it has to fill the screen, but I think they're thinking about it that way. And the problem with the iPhone, as any iPad user knows, is that iPhone apps don't work right. They are, you know, they're orientation locked and they're scaled and they're they're weird. And I think maybe that's what Apple is is talking about here. But I'm a little bit strange, like support would be Apple added for iPhone. I don't know why Apple wouldn't just say, look, <laughs> iPhone apps run in a, in a little window <laughs> and... Uh, if you want to make a universal app, you want to make an app that runs on I- iPad and Mac, you need to add that. Yeah. I'm not quite sure Strange. why there's an interim step where they say, oh, now we're going to add support. Unless it's some other technological um, update that Apple is doing that makes iPhone apps scale better. Like, you know what I mean? Like yep. tools that make the iPhone apps more kind of intelligently scale or they're thinking about some other kind of multitasking interface that allows them to be there. I'm just I'm a little bit I'm a little bit baffled by that, but it may just be like tools to make people who have iPhone apps uh, get them to run on iPad and Mac more quickly, more easily than any anything else cuz so I I that's a that's a that's a question mark for me. Like, what is that what 2020 is all going to be about? They're going to do, uh, presumably 2020 will also be about lots of improvements to the Marzipan stuff that drops in 2019. And maybe they're anticipating that that's going to be a more painful conversion. Um, also 2020, the suggestion is that that's when the ARM Macs start to appear. So maybe there's like enough going on in 2020 that they're like, this is all we're going to do for now. And then in 2021, we end up with the idea of, you know, these, these end up getting converged together where you can build them in a single binary and they can basically be on, on any of the, you know, on the Mac app store or the iOS app store, or maybe the app stores come together in some way. Um, and that makes sense. So it, it's not a lot of, of new stuff here. It feels a little bit more like this is kind of Apple's um, rollout strategy in terms of some milestones, like so that they can constrain what the, um, what the work is for 2019. Like they know there's going to be more work required in 2020 and 2021. So they're, they're, setting their agenda for what's going to fit into 2020 which or 2019 which presumably they have now right like wwdc coming in uh you know kind of soon at this point i mean it's i know it's four months away but uh it's coming soon three it's all yeah it's almost three months away so um so yeah i i i'm a little bit baffled by some of the details here but it's not surprising. This is going to be, we've said it, this is a many years process of trying to unify the application platforms. Uh, you know, is it three years? Probably more like five years to get to a very different place where there's a unified um, Apple application platform, which doesn't necessarily mean that the Mac application uh, platform will go away, but that they the, the new one is this unified uh, thing across iOS and Mac. So if iPad apps come to the Mac. There is a question about 
if any changes will be made to the Mac to make iPad apps feel more at home. And this is an article that you wrote about a couple of weeks ago, and we've been saving this topic, and it kind of perfectly dovetails with this marzipan uh, extension of the marzipan rumors. So you posed the question in a MacWall column, what if Apple uses macOS 10.15 to further unify the interfaces of its platforms? So let's not say, and what we're not saying here is this is the unification but what if it was a little bit more like when Apple did that back to the Mac event where they mm-hmm. introduced a bunch of iOS-like designs to applications on the Mac? So like, is it a sensible path to consider that Marzipan might work a little bit more easily if the operating systems share some common design elements at least? Yeah, and I think Marzipan is not necessarily even the reason you do it, but I think the reason you do it is that Apple wants consistency across its product lines. And Marzipan is a, is a symptom of the fact that Apple has decided that it wants much more um, similarity between Mac and iOS products than maybe it has had before. And you're right, the Mac to the Mac was a great, great example of like, no, we want to make the, um, the Mac have stuff that's going to be familiar to iOS users there are way more iOS users than Mac users, right? So there's a huge advantage for Apple in having Macs feel more like iOS. Mm-hmm. And I know that makes Mac users uncomfortable, and I am one of them, you know, a Mac user. I'm not super uncomfortable because I like iOS too. I think I think Apple's theory is most Mac users like iOS, and all, you know, and iOS users would be more comfortable on the Mac if it was more like iOS. Therefore, they should push in that direction. And so Marzipan is an example where the app platform comes over. But this article was like, do you also at this point start to say there's stuff in the Mac that is not really anything like um, iOS and maybe it could be more like iOS? Are there other features that we could make a little more, you know, Apple-like, more like unified across just because it's better if people don't say, well, wait a second, you're Apple. Why is why do you do it this way on this device and this way on the other device? Which I think is a strong argument. Like, oh, yeah, we shouldn't do that. We should probably be these, all these devices should probably be as similar as possible in terms of the language they use, the interfaces they use to do certain things. So I tried to imagine it. And this is one of those things where it's like all the things that will infuriate longtime Mac users if they're in the next version of Mac OS, right? Like, what did you do? Why is it like this now? But it kind of makes sense to do it that way. I keep coming back to something that continues to be a surprise to me and was even more so this year when we look at the upgrades and we try and think of Mac apps and what makes a Mac app Mac-like. And like even this year, we awarded Audio Hijack the upgrade because it was the probably the most new, uh, well, the, like the most Mac-like app we could think of. And that yeah. was pull, pulling from a pretty small selection for us i think of apps that were either new or being heavily updated um i I feel like that you know it's unfortunate especially for people that care about it but the time of being a mac like app is is changing and there are just not many of them anymore no the the we are in an era where um there are mac apps that are go-to apps for mac users and they will continue to be made and updated but there's not a lot of investment into new apps on the platform. There are, you know, there there are some here and there, but there's not a lot because um, 
you know, priority one is iOS. Priority two is probably Android. Priority three is a web app to get you everywhere else. Maybe priority four is Windows and <laughs> there's Mac at priority five. For a lot of companies, that's the truth of it is Mac and Windows are not really high priorities, but iOS and Android are. And so, you know, the Mac being maintenance of the existing rich apps that are out there and then an influx of new stuff that um that comes over from ios i mean that's the idea that's the idea plus again i'll point out like if you love the iphone and the ipad apple should have an in on you as a customer to get you if you want a laptop or a desktop to buy one of theirs but the advantage there is that their um their devices on the Mac side are reminiscent of iOS so that there's a familiarity there that kind of doesn't exist right now. Um, and so that was, that was my thought with this list was like, you know, multitasking things. I've already got full screen and, and, and split view, but like, could you do a slide over idea where you, you dock an app and you, you can you swipe it out with your trackpad or whatever from the side and it slides out and you click on something and then you, you, you slide it away. That would be a familiar thing for iPad users or um, like uh, making notification center more iOS, like making control center, uh, which is currently what we call icons on the right side of the menu bar like making that more explicitly control center and having a different interface for it than is, than is currently there now that will break a lot of longstanding kind of Mac uh, user interface conventions. But I kind of, I can see it. I can see Apple saying, Hmm, actually we're, we're going to change what the menu bar is and what the status bar is with the icons. And we're going to make it uh, more, you know, refined and more iOS like. Um, and then the big one, is the touchscreen thing, which I keep talking about touchscreens, and I, I don't know for sure that Apple will do them, but if, again, to back up and say, I'm an iPad user or an iPhone user, and now I want to get a laptop or a desktop, and I want to, ideally, you know, Apple would be where I would go because I'm comfortable with Apple's platforms, but then I see Apple's laptop, and it doesn't, it's not a touchscreen, and it doesn't look anything like anything that I use on, on iPhone and iPad, and in fact, the Windows laptops that are out there and the Windows desktops that are out there are more like it in the sense that they have a big, you know, have a touch interface that is at least sort of familiar. Um, it's not a completely different interface to me. So, I, you know, again, I look at that and I say, adding touch to the mix uh, with the Marzipan apps, not as the primary interaction method, but as an interaction method, I think it's got to be on the table. So I assume this is not, in your mind, a, a huge redesign of Mac OS or a new operating system. This is like something, again, I, I, I brought it up earlier, but something more like when they brought some iOS design to the Mac a while ago. I think that's it. I think the idea here is to incrementally update Mac OS to be more like iOS. I, and when they've said we're not merging them together, I believe them, but they are... I think, you know, pushing the application platform together and perhaps uh, pushing a lot of the interface conventions together. I think what Apple means when it says they're not merging them together is there is probably not going to be a day it, five years from now, sometime in the 2020s, where Apple is going to say, I'm sorry, you can't run BB Edit anymore, right? Just, or or maybe Audio Hijack, right? No, you can't run a classic uh, Mac OS app 
only stuff that comes from iOS will run anymore. Like, I don't think that is where they're going, at least in the medium term, maybe in the long, I mean, long term, everything changes, but Mm -hmm. I, I would imagine at that point they would have provided ways for apps like BB edit to, to, uh, adopt new technologies because bb edit was a literally a classic mac os app and it over the course of a decade plus they you know they very slowly moved onto the new systems that apple was building and apple provided a way for them to do it and that was true with a lot of those classic mac apps there were ways to come across and now bb edit's never gone away it's never been non-functional but it 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 very slowly evolved to use modern features so that may happen something like that but i that's how i read when apple says we're not going to merge the operating systems is that they're going to make it so that the operating systems have as much in common as possible but that they understand that there's a subset of the mac market that wants the stuff that ios doesn't provide and that their their choices are going to be to just keep that around or to provide it on iOS so it doesn't matter. And, you know, I think that's a long-term plan, long-term goal. But it could also be that they're like, yeah, you know, we're never going to do the terminal on mm-hmm. iOS. And that's fine because we'll, we'll, we'll keep it on the Mac and you can use it there. But, um, but I think likening this to back to the Mac is the right way to say it, which is this is a progression of things that will be added to the Mac to make it more in parity with iOS and more familiar for people and like i get it again i think there is a very strong argument maybe the strongest argument is apple's products should feel like one another on a certain fundamental level and because of the history of where the mac came from and where ios came from um they don't now apple mentioned last year at wwdc that one of the the things that they've been working on and continue to work on is this effort that is almost invisible to users which is to get the subsystems of the mac and ios back in parody because essentially they forked off of a uh, Mac OS 10 in 2007 when they built the iPhone and they've been drifting apart and they're trying to push those back together. And I think marzipan is a reason why, but I think also that's the idea. Like it's better if everything is just more consistent. If the way that all Apple's products work is it has, uh, has things in common. It also saves them a lot of effort to not be maintaining you know these completely separate code bases if they can um so it's not a it's not a complete merger but it is that in gradual seeping in of more and more ios conventions and you know i think they could do it badly and they could do it well i don't think it's a fundamentally bad idea and i think there's some benefit in saying just like an ipad as an ipad user like having synced up the iphone and ipad behavior in the last updates I don't love the control centers in the top right corner everywhere because I don't love that interaction, but I like that it's in the same place on mm-hmm. both my iPad and my iPhone, and it wasn't before. When you mentioned BB Edit, something popped into my head, which is like, huh, I don't remember BB Edit appearing in the App Store, and it was on stage at WWDC, mm-hmm. right? Like that was one of the apps. Transmit appeared a little while ago, Office as well. And uh, as of an hour ago, <laughs> there was an, a software update to BB Edit, which sandboxes the app. So mm-hmm. it's moving to the App Store. So like that, this is the this is the step they needed to go through, right? It was to it's to, progression, to make it a sandboxed right? app. But it was just like, oh yeah, okay, I forgot about that. And so yeah. it, it looks like it's still coming, I guess, because they've gone through that 
my understanding with some of those announcements is that they announced that they're going to do it, but that some of the behind the scenes and then not just BB Edit, but also like the panic apps is um, that it requires changes in macOS to allow them to ask for certain powers that they weren't. And, and this is the this is the effect of a policy change on software, which is they had to Apple had to say, OK, we're going to allow apps to ask for more permission, but then they have to build in to the operating system the permissions and the requesting of them. It's not just a policy decision. It's like a policy decision that then is an implementation issue in the OS. So my understanding about you know, Panic and BBEdit and other apps like that that were called out in June uh, is that some of those features were in the shipping version of um, of, uh, of Mac OS 10.14, but some of them were not. Some of them were in a a later release and i i was always unclear about whether that meant 1015 or whether that meant 1014.2 or 1014.3 but uh i definitely got the word even last june that like not all of those apps weren't all going to be able to go on the app store immediately because it wasn't just an issue of oh well they'll ship mojave and then we'll be ready to go it was an issue of they got to ship these particular things that we need and then we can be in the app store again. So it was kind of a statement of a principle, but yeah. that's also a great, a great sign, right? And that's a good example of, of what I was saying before about BB edit too, which is like the world may not change overnight. It may be a slow progression, but I do believe that Apple is kind of committed to allowing these apps that, that people need to continue to exist. They may just, you know, there may just be continually every year, a little bit of drift that has to happen. And that, I think that happens in software anyway, right? Like there's, even if it's not a, a global thing where you know that your company is going from point A to point B, your platform vendor, you know, platform vendors do still make changes every year that software developers have to deal with so it's it's a little bit different but not necessarily enormously different all right we should do some hashtag ask upgrade questions to finish off today's episode but first let me thank our friends over at squarespace with squarespace you can easily create a website for your next idea you can make your next move with squarespace no matter what type of website you want to make squarespace has the tools that you're going to need they have the functions they have the features and it's all in one there's nothing to install or patch or upgrade squarespace is a all in all in one solution it is a thing you can go to squarespace you can set up a website you can get a domain name you can customize award-winning templates you can add a store if you want to you can have everything backed up with 24 7 customer support it is super easy to get a website started and it's super fun to customize i've built many squarespace websites over the years i have many more in my future that i will build for other projects that i want to work on and i love squarespace with squarespace i've never had to learn how to make a website from scratch because they have all of the tools that I need. Everything is in a way that I understand and they're always adding new stuff. Like when I started using Squarespace, it didn't have online store functionality. It didn't have domain name registration. These are things that they've added over time as they understand what their customers want. I really love Squarespace and I recommend it to anybody that needs it. We built our wedding website on Squarespace last year and it was super easy to do and they had all of the page structure in a way that you want. Like they have actual wedding templates and you could choose a wedding template and enable and disable the pages that you want and customize them. Super easy to do. You can find out just how fun and simple it is to build your own website with Squarespace by signing up for their free trial at squarespace.com slash upgrade. There's no credit card required and it's a full trial. You can go in and you can customize your heart's content and build your website out the way that you want and then when you're ready to launch it to the world their plans start at just $12 a month but you can get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain 
with the offer code UPGRADE at checkout. Once again, that is squarespace.com slash upgrade and the code UPGRADE to get 10% off your first purchase and to support this show. Our thanks to Squarespace for sponsoring this week's episode of Upgrade. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So our first hashtag ask upgrade question comes from Nor'easter, who would like to know, Jason, can they get a two-minute user review of the Bedit sleep monitor? Sure. Um, I bought one. I'm going to write it up at some point. This is Apple owns this company. This is an example of Apple buying a company and yet keeping its uh, product kind of on the outside. It's not Apple branded or anything. They just did a new version. You can buy it in the Apple store, right? Like You it's, can. It's yeah. not like one of those ones where they're like, oh, we'll just run it down until it's done. Like, no, this is like just a brand that they own. It's yeah, it's interesting. So I um I bought it because I was kind of curious and I like the idea of sort of locking when am I getting a uh, good night's sleep and not and am I getting am I waking up in the middle of the night and all these things. It's a little pad that you put on your mattress basically and it's got a USB cord that comes out and you plug that in and on the on the plug end is basically like a Bluetooth thing and then you have to connect it to a device um what they want you to do is connect it to your iPhone and then it syncs the health data with all of your other health data and from your Apple Watch and all of that um, and monitors your your uh, your sleep. And it has to be by your bed in, in range of the, the bed at dongle because you're doing um, Bluetooth LE to connect to the sensor and get the data and collect it. And it also actually uses the phone microphone uh, to do snoring monitoring. Oh my God. So it listens and it, it, it logs when there's snores. Um, so you can see how much snoring you did in the night as well, which I think is pretty clever. Um, I, uh, I I like it. I don't love it. One of my big problems with it is, speaking of iPad apps and iPhone apps, it does not work. It does not have an iPad app. Mm. It really wants mm-hmm. you to use your iPhone. Mm-hmm. And you know what that means? That means it is making a fundamental assumption that you sleep with your iPhone next to your bed. Mm. I I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. And so I paired it with my iPad, but that means that my iPad is not connected to all of my fancy home data. And, and the it means that I'm using. Can't write to health, can it? Exactly. And yeah, that's what I meant. And uh, and that's not great. And uh, and I have to use it in the blown up iPad compatibility mode, which is all, or which is dumb because they don't have a proper iPad. So do, you, do you have to leave the app open all night? Well, so it, it is using a background task to do the uh, snore monitoring and talk to the Bluetooth LE thing. So you have to have run it and not have it be killed, which I haven't had a problem with. If you kill the bedded app and go to sleep, it won't log you, though. It has to it has to have been launched. It's like probably the last thing you do before you go to bed is is open it and then you like can can go back to your home screen and close it and then it will just run in the background. Which is not great. It should it should just work and it doesn't yeah. and that part that part bugs me. It's a little like it, it should be more like the Apple Watch where it just they they get to talk to each other and I think maybe that is an effect of it being owned by Apple but not Apple proper that they're not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um but the, the fact that I have to use my iPad and that my iPad is not part of the great health database, I'd like to be able to sync it across all my de- devices and stuff. And that's not, I think, a and thing so you can like, do. So if you, that's silly. If you put the better app on your iPhone and like have an account, can then the phone not write the data to health? Or is it like has to be where it's performed? I don't think, I, yeah, I don't think it, it travels. That's annoying. I haven't tried that, but I don't think that travels. And I, I think yeah. this is just a fundamental problem where, like, I mean, maybe they discovered most people sleep with their phone next to their bed, but I don't. 
I, I have my phone on a charger in the kitchen because mm-hmm. I have an iPad and so I don't need my phone. <laughs> I have my iPad instead. So that's that's weird. But anyway, that's there's the short review of the Bed at Sleep Monitor. It has, I, I think it works pretty well and I think it's very clever and I, I was just curious about how it work in terms of monitoring my, my sleep and when I go to bed and when I wake up and am I getting a good night's sleep and am I waking up in the middle of the night. And, you know, all of that seems to work pretty well. After a day or two, I got used to the feeling that the pad was there. I and Now I just ignore it. I don't even notice that it's there. So Dominic asks, with the rumored wireless charging coming to the AirPods, combined with the uh, rumor that we spoke about, of, like the iPhone being able to charge, like Samsung's doing this. So the S10, you can take the Galaxy Buds and put them on the back of the phone and they charge up. It's like bilateral charging is the phrase. So Dominic wants to know, do we think that the next AirPods could be the first portless product from Apple? I think not this version. No. But maybe version 3. I feel like that the AirPods are probably the product I can imagine going all wireless first. I mean, let's not include the Apple Watch because technically the Apple Watch doesn't have Apple any ports Pencil. in it. Apple and Pencil. the Apple Pencil. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think it's like those are... The Apple Pencil, yes, that 100% works. But I get Dominic's question of like a product that has a port having it removed. I think that's probably a better way to think about it. So, mm-hmm. you know, and again, it's like... Uh, let's The Apple Pencil, I think we're, gonna, we're just going to pull out from this conversation because like, yes, it had a lightning port, but you plug it in to something... It was all. It's always been a little bit of a of an outlier, even though. Let's of course, just say the, Apple, the next, the next, yeah, all right, the next there you go. Apple you. product. So uh, the next one, but like, can you imagine? Like, what, what can you imagine this happening with the AirPods? I think it's it feels inevitable to me, but not with the next one. Yeah, I, I it's going to be a while because you're going to need to sell it. You you're going to want to sell it to people who don't have a you know don't have to buy a wireless charger and don't have a phone like mm-hmm. even if the next generation of iPhones can do wireless charging of devices like the Samsung S10 can like th- that's not your own that's it's not your whole market. Slow. That is products. slow charging coming from the phones, so yeah. you wouldn't want to charge like you'd have to like leave it overnight on the back of the it doesn't make sense oh you leave it on a chi charger like it's it's uh, it's less than ideal but i think that yeah. it makes sense for this product to go that way in the future um but i don't Maybe. think we're there yet i think i think the money of people who don't have wireless chargers is more important to apple than making a super mm. cool thing without a port that requires another accessory in order to charge it and they're not going to put a charger in the box with it so that's, yeah, I think it's going to be a while. James asks, do you think Apple will continue to update the iMac Pro after the new Mac Pro is released? I do. I think the iMac Pro is going to stick around. I think it won't get an update, uh, you know, super often. But I think that there's, I mean, you could argue that the iMac Pro is more, uh is what Apple wanted to make. Yeah, right? I was just like, going to say this. <laughs> it is worth remembering, the iMac Pro is the computer that Apple were not forced to make. That was the one they decided to make, and they were basically forced to make the Mac Pro. Right. I mean, the argument is that maybe they have changed direction now, and therefore, since they're making a Mac Pro, they don't need an iMac Pro. But um, I think Apple will watch the sales figures, because I think the argument is strong that you don't need a Mac Pro, and you could just use an iMac Pro. But if everybody who's in that market buys a Mac Pro with an external monitor and the iMac Pro sales falter, then maybe they could maybe they would stop doing it. I would also argue that 
Um, I feel like the iMac Pro is also pointing a direction for the future of the iMac in terms of removing all spinning storage space and redesigning the the fans and all of that. So um, I, I think that there's some, you know, it's not impossible that the iPad Pro will disappear, but or I mean, the uh, sorry, the uh, um, iMac Pro will disappear. But I think it's it's less likely and um, that it's more likely that Apple really does believe that the iMac is the ideal desktop and that they're uh, they'll continue to push it. But but, you know, who knows? Who knows? But um, I think I think in the end, the sales will tell. Um, we don't know whether Apple's opinion about this has changed. But I do I do want to point out that, yes, Apple initially thought the iMac Pro could just replace the Mac Pro and they may still feel that it's the real you know, product that's going to sell well. Um, but iMac Pro sales will tell. Tom asks, how do you record and publish the show so quickly? Do you just get it in one take with no editing? I don't understand the no take question as such, but I do understand why people ask this because we do publish Upgrade pretty quickly. Upgrade's usually published kind of within 90 minutes of us stopping recording. Right. And the way that we do that is I edit the show immediately and the way that I kind of take stock of what needs to be edited is during our conversation i'm writing down time codes of all of the things that i need to go back and fix and this includes when we mess stuff up or when we cross talk over each other quite excessively um i go back and then go and fix all of that stuff and publish it um i like upgrade to go out as quickly as possible i don't know why i feel that way but i always have um i kind of I pride ourselves on the ability to do it. Well, it's very timely. Yeah, it is very timely. And that that's part of it is that we can get the we can catch the Monday evening commute in the US um and we're talking about stuff that's going on right now. So, um I think there's an advantage in that like anytime like ATP um there tends to be what a day and a little bit gap between mm-hmm. episode recording and release. Mm-hmm. They record on a Wednesday night and it usually goes out Friday morning, I think. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, and, you know, that sometimes that bites them. Sometimes that bites them because news happens after they record and before they release. And I really like the idea, if at all possible, of um, of getting the show out uh, immediately because then it's out and it's of the moment and it's about what's happening right now. And if something happens tomorrow, well, of course we didn't cover it because we already released our episode and then we just have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, incomparable, I record way in advance. And although I don't do a, uh, a super heavy edit on that most of the time, I do spend you know several hours with it, usually because there are way more people. Two people, podcasts are also way easier to edit. And then sometimes you have shows that are much more topical and are uh, a heavier edit is more appropriate. And Cortex is an example of that, where you and Gray you know, are not super timely and you guys um, sweat that a lot more plus your session i believe is a lot less um you know free-flowing whereas ours is pretty close to the final Mm -hmm. yeah it's like atp sounds better i think than our show some of the like a lot of the time because marco is really going in and like fine-tuning it sure they've also got three people so they got more cleanup to do yep but i do think that this show does sound really good and we take a lot of efforts in making that work the best that we can it's different. So like it takes me probably about an hour, an hour and hour and a bit, depending on the episode to, to, to edit this and publish it. If I edited this show the same way that I edit Cortex, which is I think closer to what Marco does, we'd be looking at maybe four hours and that's yeah. not really 
the way that I want to do this because that means I couldn't get it out the same day because we we start recording at my five p.m. So and it changes the um it changes the dynamic of the the show. Yep. It becomes a show where you're spending four hours a week on editing instead of one or one and a half. And you know, the, like I said, the incomparable I put in time like that because I've got a large panel and because they're often a lot of kind of content decisions that I've got to make. Um, it varies from show to show. I've also got weekly podcasts that I do where there's almost no editing. And, uh, you know, that it's the, it's the choices you make that, because it is, it is a cost to go through. And part of the, the calculation is how much can I improve this uh, versus how much time am I spending on it? Because you could spend four hours every Monday evening not having your dinner and editing upgrade. How much better would it be? And the answer is not a lot better because it's there are only the two of us and we mostly do it pretty much straight through and there are just a few little nips and tucks here and there. And so mm-hmm. you could spend more time, but why? Yeah, most of the differences we get out of that, not many people would notice. Yes, it, which is the beauty be, of... Yeah. Of fixing, like when I do a podcast with eight people on it and I edit it, so it's like, wow, nobody ever interrupted everybody and everyone let everyone finish. And ev- it's like, yeah, that didn't happen, right? Like I made it seem like that, but it wasn't like that. But with this, it's not, um, I-, I think nobody would notice at all because it would be little examples of crosstalk or little nips and tucks here. It would be, it, it, I think it would not be worth your time, quite frankly. Now, Rick Allen in the chat is asking another question. Uh, Rick wants to know if I listen to the final version. I don't anymore because... All right, so like, I feel like I'm dooming myself on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I trust my editing now um, because I cannot remember the last time I made a mistake in a show that I had to go back and fix it because I edit so much that I yeah. know my process and I know how yep. to do it and I've built in enough checks and balances you know into the way that I edit and like different checks that I'll do to the file before it goes out um that most people would think that I had lost my mind sometimes with some of the checks that I do because I but these are all checks based upon mistakes I've made <laughs> in the past sure and it becomes a uh, it becomes a, a, a like a, a safety net. Like mm-hmm. I will check. I don't listen to the shows back that I edit because I again I don't have that kind of time, and I'm fairly confident in my workflow. But do I open the final export and look at the waveform? Yes, I do. Yep. Because what if there's a big gap or something weird that exported wrong? I can see it. And then I can go in and, and fix it. And that does happen from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, Forecast, which I use and you use to encode MP3, Marco actually built in a uh, a silence, silence sensor. Mm-hmm. And it will actually say, warning, there's a three-second long silence at, at 24 minutes in the file. And that's a nice little safety net, although I would see that in the, in the waveform. So there's some of that, but... Um, yeah, in a 90-minute podcast, I don't spend 90 minutes listening back to it. You, When you edit it, you can listen to some of it enough to spot check it, but it's more of a spot check than it is anything else. Yeah, so that's that's podcast editing for you folks. Uh, maybe I'll tell one last little thing on this because I like talking about it, and then maybe we'll wrap up on this. So because of the way that me and Jason edit and because of the way that we both know I'll edit the show, we have this funny little thing that happens that you'll only notice if you listen to the show live, which I refer to as like the editor's prerogative mm-hmm. uh, or like kind of like the, 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 the kind of the fortune of people that edit shows. So both me and Jason know that if because we remove crosstalk, we'll pick the best thing that's said. So if me and Jason are talking over each other, 
And sometimes you will hear us say, like it make entire points for like maybe five or ten seconds sometimes of the two of us just talking. Yeah. And we both know that I will go back and pick the best one of those. But this is something that typically people that edit podcasts do way worse to each other because we are both safe in the knowledge that I will fix it later on. And I think it's just this funny thing that we do. But this is totally how you get used to the way that a show is edited. So with Cortex, I very frequently will take another shot at saying something if I kind of messed it up in a way that doesn't really happen when I record this show because my brain is like in a different mode because there's way more of like what I'm saying will be committed to the audio unless something terrible happens where if I know I have the safety net of like Mike in the future will listen to this and he'll fix it then I will allow myself to kind of flub and then be like, okay, let me redo that and say it again. But the funny thing that happens with this show is me and Jason just talk over each other and then move on knowing that I'll fix it later on, which is just kind of funny. You'll pull it apart or you'll find out that one of us didn't need to make that noise because it was, right? Like you may, and that's editor's prerogative. And I do Mm -hmm. that too. I do a lot on the incomparable of like uncovering jokes. And sometimes two people make the same joke and I'm like... That one's better. And I'll just make yep. a decision. It's like, sorry, yep. other person, you also made that joke and nobody's going to hear it now, but that's just how it has to be. And that's that's also a, a part of it. I did make a New Year's resolution of a sort this year, which is if, um, because I default to what you described about um, our show, which is to just let it go. It's live for the most part and you fix egregious things later. I did make a little bit of a, a New Year's resolution to do a little bit more of the, can we stop? because that was wrong just because what I was finding is that I know something was wrong. I let it go because I don't want to create an edit point and make more work for you. And then we spend a week having people complain that we got something wrong. So I have tried to do a little bit more of that because, but I still think that there's value in it being the default because if you don't think of it that way, what happens with cortex is exactly what happens, which is suddenly every five minutes you're stopping to say, can I rephrase that? Let me do that again. And then you've got a whole list of edits and then you have to be sure that you edit it diligently. Otherwise you're, Hey, wait, wait, let me every down on an ATP, someone will rephrase something and it'll get through the edit and they'll be like, Oh, you missed that one. <laughs> right. And it's like, I'd rather not do that, but sometimes you have to. Sometimes you do. All right. Should we, should we redo that part, Jason? <laughs> do you want no, to just redo that whole question? Or we it's good? not going to get any better. So let's just go with that one. All right. Thanks, everybody, for submitting their questions this week. You can ask questions of us with the hashtag AskUpgrade, and they will go into a document for us to pull from later on. And if you want to open the show, you can use uh, hashtag SnellTalk for that one to ask some some random question that may find its way into a future episode. Um, if you want to find Jason online, you can go to sixcolors.com and theincomparable.com. Jason is at jsnell on Twitter. You can find me I'm at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. And you can find this show, many other shows that both me and Jason host over at relay.fm slash shows. You can maybe find something new there to pick up for your commute, for your dishwashing time, your lawnmower time, Whatever it is that you do uh, when you listen to podcasts, there's something else there for you, I'm sure. Thanks again to Green Chef, Lunar Display, and Squarespace for their support of this show. And we'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. You're going to edit this part out, right? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs>